This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Deboat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And this is Dave Debo for the entire hour today. We have one guest and a lot to talk about. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor is here. He's director of the Center for Urban Studies at SUNY Buffalo. He's also the author of The Harder We Run, the state of black Buffalo in 1990 and the present. Before the shootings, about, uh, what, three months ago, he pulled together a report looking at some of the problems that black Buffalo faces and then putting it in context of an earlier report from 1990 that looked at some of those same problems and charting the difference. You can probably see where it heads. There hasn't been, in his report's estimation, enough progress. They've evaluated what those factors are that need to be addressed. We'll talk a little bit about solutions as the program unfolds. Dr. Taylor, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure being here with you this morning. Tell me how surprised you were, or weren't, when the shooting occurred. Uh, I was surprised, um, shocked. It, It was a crazy moment. I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, A group of people had been studying my book on black Cincinnati, and it invited me there to to the celebration and to talk a little bit about that book, which traced the development of black Cincinnati over time. And we were right in the middle of the program when I started getting uh, vibrations on my uh, smart watch, sure. and I looked down, and they said there was a shooting at a supermarket, and immediately, I, without reservations, I knew that uh, that must have been the tops on 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 Jefferson. So it it, it was a. a, a shocking that that would occur. Um, It was surprising that Buffalo would be targeted. And the first kind of thing I wanted to begin to process was uh, why would they target uh, Buffalo for something like that? Your answer surprises me because I think in the analysis and discussion that's happened uh, since the shooting, a lot of people have said that we were picked more or less because of the level of segregation. You're someone who's obviously looked at segregation, looked at some of the issues of the East Side. Uh, if if the segregation was so strong, and if racism is out there, replacement theory is out there, wouldn't it have followed normally that this was unfortunately going to happen? 
Well, terrorism and, and, and black people have always been interlocked uh, across dimensions of time and, and place. Uh, African-Americans have always faced terrorism, and, and they face terrorism, I think, for a couple of reasons. Um, we are an ex- exploited and oppressed people that have always lived under horrendous conditions, uh, have always been denied opportunities. And as a consequence of, of this, black people fight back. They fight back. And, and because they fight back, there has to be mechanisms to keep them under control. And terrorism, whether they were the Ku Klux Klans, whether they were the lynching, whether they were the random shootings, have always been there because blacks represent the most consistent force for democracy in this country. And we're that consistent force for democracy because we've got nothing to lose but our chains. So in in this moment where there is a literal war between the right wing and liberal Democrats and progressive forces in this country over what kind of America do we want? I mean, we would like to think everybody wanted the same of America, but they don't. And so it wasn't that we were just concentrated because of the conditions of of life that we face. We will fight back. And what that means is that more likely than not, we're going to always report uh, uh, vote Democratic. We're going to vote for the most progressive forces. So when we got elections coming up (laughs) and, and, and a battle between the right and the left. And progressive center, uh, folks are going to try to stop that, intimidate that. So I always felt that this shooter was not just a person with hate. I thought this shooter was a person with political motivations and intent. And I thought this person was tied to the right wing, the Republican right wing in, in, in this country. And I thought that Buffalo was selected not just because there was a high concentration of blacks here. Uh, Buffalo is no farther away than Harlem. They have a higher concentration in Harlem. He could have, I timed the distance. It's no greater distance between Tops and Buffalo and, and Harlem. It just isn't. He, uh, Rochester has almost as many blacks as Buffalo. They have around 82,000. We have uh, 89. So why Buffalo? Yeah. Because we are a very progressive community. Because we're a black community that is well known and because we look a lot more like other black communities across America than, say, Harlem or Bronx. And and because we're not a New York, I mean, if you want to make a big splash, you can't do it by doing something in New York. But Buffalo, it's, it's very different. So I think it's because of the... Uh, the political significance of this community, but also and also because we were a segregated community with hardships. But uh, let me push back just a little bit. We're we're no less progressive than Harlem. No, but we're not in New York City. My point is, New York City is a big place. It's uh, like everything. The you, impact would be lost if yeah, he attacked a Harlem. Yeah, because okay. it's not. Buffalo. It's so it would be talked about, but it's that impact gets diluted because folks. Well, everything happens there. It was nine eleven. It was this. It was that, and so. But a Buffalo, it did exactly what it was supposed to. We gained national prominence and all of those other kinds of things. But back to your original question, 
it's all because of the high levels of concentration and because of the conditions that we faced that caused us to be on the spotlight, that caused us to be a, a target. Which brings us perfectly to the different points in your report. I want to try and take them uh, one by one. Uh, hopefully, we'll not run out of time and be able to get it all. And if we don't, by the way, we're going to put this report up on our website at WBFO.org. Um, it is an enlightening read. It has lots of facts and figures in there, but it's not a dense read by any means. It uh, really kind of outlines uh, what, what you've said is the state of black buffalo, the problems we face. Item number one, the driving force behind the challenges facing black buffalo is racial residential segregation. Yeah, um, we, we like to think about racial residential segregation as some kind of legacy of, of the past, but but it's not. And, and it's not just driven by white people don't like black people. Uh, and we used to like to think that way. So black people move into a neighborhood, white people just run away. More than affinity groups, you're saying? Yeah, it's 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 way beyond that. Um, uh, racial residential segregation is is tied up with with profits. It's tied up with wealth production. It's tied up in the very way in which we design and, and construct our, our neighborhoods. And let me put it quickly and, 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 and simply. Housing value. In the development of neighborhoods, whiteness and social class exclusivity was embedded in the way in which value was created. Uh, the very concept of value as it related to housing and residential areas was based upon race, whiteness. So within that formula, as a community becomes increasingly white and as social class exclusivity grows, value goes up. As the proportion of blacks in the community increases and as social class inclusivity increases, values go down. And, and within this framework, we design neighborhoods around housing value. So the greater the value, the more highly developed the community. The lower the value, the less developed community. And, and what that does, and the culprit in all of this is home ownership. I, that's exactly where I was going to go, because rental properties are of greater value to me as a landlord if um, if I own them, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, so for, for those reasons, in, in, in its purest sense, you try to separate owner-occupied housing from rental-occupied housing. So in that most expensive and highly developed areas, this is what you see happen. So to test that, we, we rank ordered all of the municipalities in Erie County, and it followed that. And as you rank order them, the whiter and more exclusive they are, the values went up. So Clarence is at the very top with less than 4% black, and at the very bottom is uh, Buffalo, where you have almost 38% African-Americans. I did notice in the report um, that there wasn't an automatic correlation, though, between white population or non-white population 
and the housing value. And I, I, I'm thinking of some of the rural areas you cite, uh, Eden, Boston, Colden. No blacks, appreciably no blacks there. And not necessarily a corresponding increase in housing value. Well, what you have in, 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 in the white communities, you have neighborhoods organized both by race and class. And, and so what you'll see is a correlation with class and, and those income values. So uh, this is what I mean by whiteness and social class. Okay. And so the white community, as the black community, has a class component. Uh, so you'll see the white community uh, organized by, by class within the framework, framework of, that, uh, of, of, that, of that high levels of uh, whiteness. So not all white people are going to be living in, in a place like at the same level as Clarence yeah. based upon their class uh, position. And, and also in some of those high-valued municipalities, you'll also have these pockets of rural Poverty. poor whites that, that are living inside of those neighborhoods and communities. Uh, but we've done an analysis of white, what we call white space versus black space, and that white space still is much more highly developed, uh, still has uh, uh, frameworks and opportunities that you don't find in the black space. But a couple of things that go along with this residential segregation, because residential segregation constructs the framework that drives black neighborhood development because of this economic component. You, they've literally built a high rent wall around the African-American community. So blacks are, are segregated on the lowest valued land in all of every county. But the rent structure, how much you pay for rent, uh, keeps them tied contained. to that space, Fenced in. contained, fixed, and stuck in that space. And you have mechanisms and, and like I, credit ratings and and the number of bedrooms that you need. All of those things are, are part of that. And in some places where we'll find a scattering of, of low-income blacks, if you look carefully, the the dwelling units that are capable of accommodating those groups it's relatively small so they might you might be able to get 500 in that area but not a thousand so the high rent wall or the fence that does this containing yes Chiktawaga on one side metal coal corridor on the other yep. um downtown on the other yep Yep. Um, higher rents the further from this core you move out. Right. Higher rents don't give people a lot of options. Right. And in some places, I mean, where where rents can get affordable, say, in a place like Hamburg or even in Orchard Park, we've looked at that. But if you add the transportation costs oh, yeah. and all of those other yeah. it's not going to work. Right, <laughs> it's, right. It's, it's, it's not going to work. And, and so they end up contained. And once contained... It makes them a perfect site for, for predatory investors. Which brings us perfectly to the second point of your report, the underdevelopment of east side neighborhoods, substandard rental housing, rent gouging, land banking, which is housing demolition. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, sidewalk infrastructure is poor, uh, unkept vacant lots, uh, lack of green space. Let's hit each one of those. Um, I think you've already touched on the idea of substandard rental housing. 
What about rent gouging? Well, these two that, things that gives an intentionality that I, the, I, I the, don't think people acknowledge. These things go to, go together. When, when you're contained, you you don't have options and choices. You have to take what 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 is there and and and, and what is available. Now, we often think of the east side, and when you, you lay out the conditions that you just described that came from the report, a lot of people want to say, well, that's a site of disinvestment. This is caused by disinvestment. No. And you don't argue that? No. It's predatory investment. Disinvestment means you're not making investments. Predatory investments are designed to extract as much wealth as you possibly can from a location and an area. So... Rent gouging refers to the fact of charging excessive rents for inferior housing. And so when people are paying 36% and more of their income on inferior, poor quality housing, this is rent gouging. And so on the east side, you have in many neighborhoods and communities people paying 40 50, 60, and in some cases, 70% of their income on housing. Now, what the landlords and the property people do in these neighborhoods and communities, the vast majority of whom do not live on the east side, with many not even living in the city of Buffalo, um, by doing limited maintenance on the property while charging high rents, the gap between maintenance and the rents charged is where the profits lie. And that's the predatory part for you. That's the predatory part. You drive down quality, you increase rent, the gap allows you to make a, a, a significant amounts of money. In some instances, to kind of get a sense of, of this, because some of the data that we would need to really measure this with precision doesn't exist in Buffalo, but we got kind of an idea about saying, okay, let's look at the, the medium value of rent in this community, and let's look at the value of medium value of a home. Just paying this rent, how long would it take for this person to have purchased a home? In a a shocking number of instances, no more than five years, a person would be generating fifty, sixty thousand dollars. If they were putting that money to a mortgage payment rather than to a landlord. I, I think though you can make the same argument for any one of the brand new apartment developments downtown. Yeah, the, um, not, the, the not, biggest, not to pick the on biggest, Seneca one, but the rents there are, are much more than a, a mortgage payment in Orchard Park. Yeah, but the, the, there's a huge significant difference there. One is that the, the gap between maintenance and the rents that are paid are not nearly as great as they are on the east side uh, because you have high levels of maintenance, maintenance. and high, yeah. high okay. rents. And so the actual profit margin, and you're making a lot of money over there, don't get me wrong, but the margin is is, is tighter. Is less because they're reinvesting it, it, it in the property. Exactly, okay. exactly. And these folks, I mean, home ownership would not work for many of them, but the point, the larger point that we're making is is just the amazing amount of, of wealth that is being extracted from that community. And understand, understand this. If you're paying 40 to 60 to 70 percent of your income mm-hmm. on one commodity, rent, housing, 
And all of that is being taken out of the community altogether. You have limited amount of money to invest in other areas. So the economy gets distorted because you're not buying this, you're not buying this, you're not buying that, because you're living from minute to minute because of the huge amount of money that you're spending on rent. So that drives vacancies, I mean, movements. Buffalo has the highest eviction rate in all of New York State. Wow. The highest eviction rate. And 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 most of that, and and a significant amount of those evictions are occurring on Buffalo's east side. And part of that goes back to a figure you have in the report. 36% of east side residents pay more than 50% of their income in rent. Yeah. That's a huge number. That's a huge number, and, and if you operationalize that, and you still got all your other expenses. You still got all of your other expenses. So we think that, that these conditions create toxic stress, toxic stress. Mm-hmm. And the toxicity of this stress is driving a whole range of health problems, including, we believe, infant mortality, low birth weight, uh, and, and contributors to asthma and, and other, other elements along these lines. So the housing is, is huge. Uh, the housing also is a social determinant for inadequate education because kids live in many of these houses that are constantly moving, kids constantly changing schools, living in homes that are unhealthy, uh, um, um, homes full of rats and roaches. uh, uh, And and a number of instances, these things move through the your house at night, and you can hear them in the walls. So we believe that sleep deprivation is an issue inside of these communities. And so when you look at at the educational achievement of the kids, you cannot ignore the conditions under which we live. And we don't have any program attacking this, while at the same time, according to the investigative report, The city has allowed these predatory property owners to accumulate around $22 million in unpaid court fees. I I mean, you live in Buffalo. What would happen to you if you don't pay your parking ticket? (laughs) I think we saw that with the mayoral candidate. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, Talk to me a little bit, and and we will touch on health. That's in your report. We will touch on educational attainment. Uh, I want to book along a little bit, though, so we have time toward the end of this program to talk a little bit about some solutions. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor is here. He's director of the Center for Urban Studies at UB. We're going pretty much line by line through his report called The Harder We Run, the State of Black Buffalo in both 1990 and the present, issued about uh, three months ago. They compared the uh, the progress of blacks from an earlier report in Buffalo to a current situation for blacks in Buffalo, and lo and behold, there's not a lot of progress. I, I want to go back to the, uh, the item about housing. Uh, you in the report have said that east side land banking, euphemistically called housing demolition, takes all these residential parcels out of circulation and, and sets them aside for future development. And lo and behold, the development doesn't come. Or when it does come, it's not necessarily of the community. It's another way where this wealth is being extracted. Right. It's it's a huge issue. First, I want to stress that that the the, the mayor always likes to to say, especially with his five-on-five programs, 
that there was a major problem of housing abandonment and that he went into these neighborhoods to destroy all of these houses so that he could eliminate this problem of, of housing abandonment. Well, there was a problem of housing abandonment. Uh, the east side was the population center of Buffalo, and thousands of, of white workers rushed out into the suburban home ownership zones, and abandoned housing was often left in its wake. So, so it was a problem. No one disagrees with the severity of the housing abandonment problem. However, the mayor and his predecessors, their solution was dumb, stupid, and wrongheaded because it did not involve the people who lived in the neighborhoods and the community. It was not, they did not couple demolition with engagement with residents and planning and development. So they eliminated the housing abandonment problem and they created the equally devastating vacant lot problem and it did not have to be. But that's not Oh, uh, let, let me. The, the mayor isn't here, and we do have uh, plans to try and get him on a, a future program. But without him being here, I'm obligated to push back and, and try to at least play some devil's advocate here. Sure. If you've got a house that is, as you said earlier, filled with roaches and rats, and the roof is falling in, and God knows what other problems, doesn't it therefore make sense to remove that? eyesore, that danger, that uh, horrible place for the neighborhood, and demolish a home? Absolutely. But there's a way that you do that. You can either do that with careful planning and development. That's what I meant. It, that the, we all realize that the abandoned housing issue had to be resolved. But this is the way you could have done it. You could have engaged with the residents. You could have planned how you're going to rebuild and redevelop the neighborhood and the community. You were going to spend millions of dollars on the housing demolition. You could have trained the people who lived in the neighborhood. You to could have do the demolition to, work. To do the demolition work. You could have helped develop companies to do that so that the people in living in those neighborhoods would have had an opportunity to rebuild their lives as they rebuilt their neighborhoods. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. You did not engage the residents at all. There was no planning occurring and taking place. This was about demolition without reconstruction. Then, that's the then, story of urban renewal throughout yeah, all of then America. Then you though. hired, you hired, white companies who employed white workers to do the work. And so demolition became a big jobs program for the white community while devastating the black community. And it did not have to be that way. I, I, I wonder, though, if there was intentionality, because some of what you describe uh, is the story of urban renewal across the entire nation. Sure. I, I look at the area that uh, around Niagara Falls, for example, right downtown. They tore down houses and buildings for the convention center that eventually became the Indian Casino. And still today, years later, there's a lot of vacant land there. And I don't know if it was an intentionally racist thing, because I think those were more mixed neighborhoods. 
I wonder if it's not just it was the bad urban renewal no, decision. It, 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 it Tell was, me more. It was intentional. And, and from their point of view, it wasn't a bad urban renewal decision. The idea was to rebuild and develop a new type of city. Robert Moses in New York City oh, yeah? developed the template for that. And it was about a long-term strategy to transform and change the neighborhood and the community. Let me give you a local example of how that operated and worked. In 1973, uh, the city of Buffalo, in their urban renewal zone, declared the space between Michigan, between Main Street and Michigan Avenue the medical corridor. Then they proceeded. At that time, close to 9,000 black people lived in the Fruit Belt. This is 1973. Then they made the decision, said there's lots of blight up in here. We're going to clear the blight out. They understood and knew that they would be displacing thousands of black people. And they knew they had never planned to bring them back. So they tore all of those housing units down. Then temporarily, temporarily, to cover that, developed deals with Promise Baptist Church, St. John's Baptist Church, and the Buffalo Municipal Housing Authority to build public housing and low-income housing. So they built the Promise uh, neighborhood, uh, Promise, uh, uh, neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, area. I forget the name of it. Then they built Matthew's Homes. Then they built St. John's. Fast forward today, part of the steel plan, Matthews is gone, torn down, demolished. Promised neighborhood, gone, gone. torn down, demolished. Reverend Chapman caught trying to sell and get rid of McCarley Garden. They stopped him. He was trying to. Now you look at the area now. It's it's grown. It's developed. There are less than 3,000 black people remaining inside of that neighborhood and community. And most recently, the city of Buffalo sold four vacant lots valued at $16,000 to St. John's for $200,000. My point is that urban renewal was deliberate. It was intentional. And they did not care about the hardships that would be soon to follow. They and in, just, city in, after, in your view, they just wanted development? Yes. And, and that's is what it, all of the data, because these people knew they these were scientists. They they had accumulated the data. They knew what the values were. I can show you the reports from Buffalo. Is it coincidental that the rebuilders are all white construction companies? I'm saying I'm guessing you would argue no. No. That that's no. not coincidental. That was part of a plan? That was that intentional? That, that, yes, it was intentional. Okay. If you look at the data, if you look at the data, um, and I have the reports from the Buffalo Municipal Housing Authority. I mean, they got a book written this thick in 1937. This thick. 
first that, that shows the location. That's how I discovered that, that blacks and whites lived in the same neighborhood and community prior to that, because they have all of these dot maps. They have the maps where all of the diseases are. They know everything about this city, everything. And they also understood the consequences of certain types of things. But they, they placed that within a theoretical formula that suggested that the cities were a natural area and that there were always going to be pain and misery. And you couldn't get rid of pain and misery. So what you do is create a ladder that allows the best and the brightest to climb out of the pain and the misery. It was racist because blacks were considered a, a part of that lower species. But weren't they given a chance to climb the ladder? I ask somewhat rhetorically. In, 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 in modern day, yeah. Uh, uh, but the problem is that only a handful are going to climb the ladder. William Julius Wilson said that the new economies will push up a handful of middle class people, but the masses would be drawn down. Um also, in, in order to create hope and possibilities you and to control folks, you always got to have what we used to call back in the day window dressing. <laughs> you always had window dressing. That's to say, look, they did it. You, too, can. It's like the lottery. Um, you, too, it could be you knowing that only a handful of people will, will be able to uh, um win the lottery. And so from their point of view, they assume that that suffering, that misery was the price of success. It was the price of, of, of victory. It was collateral damage. And it was okay. Because at the end, they would argue. And the, I, I've seen the Buffalo News and others say that same thing. In the end, they will argue. Uh, it was worth it. And they will look at the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus and they will say, if you look at what we have done, the suffering, the misery, the pain is gone, was worth it. It was worth it. Now we have the medical campus. And it was that way of, of, of thinking. But we think there's another way to develop and grow cities. We don't believe there's anything natural about slum areas. We don't believe that any of that is natural. And that because it's not natural, we can transform and change these places. So that's why we believe that urban policy matters. What kind of city that you want to build matters. And the way in which you go about building those locations and places, it matters. I want to talk solutions in just a moment, but let's tick off just real quickly. Some of these, I think, are obvious and have been discussed before. Let's just tick off the remaining problems you cite in the report. Dr. Henry Lee. Taylor is here. The report I'm referencing is The Harder We Run. At the end of this program, we will be throwing it up online at WBFO.org for you. Uh, obviously, 
poor health, I think, is something that a lot of people have talked about. The county is beginning to recognize it with a task force for a long time. Reverend George Nicholas and, and UB have been starting to do some work with it. That one, I don't think, necessarily needs some discussion with the amount of time remaining. Limited educational attainment, in your report, you even say that has been well documented. Um, low wages, that, uh, that I also think uh, your report documents and fleshes out, but that I think is uh, one that people are aware of. Uh, gentrification, again, makes sense to me. I think makes sense to most folks. They understand the concept. The one that struck me that uh, we haven't yet talked about is structural joblessness. And the reason it struck me, I think, is because joblessness is part of the discussion. I think we all look at joblessness, but you chose the words structural joblessness. Explain what that means. Well, what structural jo- structural joblessness means is that the high rates of, of, of unemployment among African Americans, their location at the very bottom of the economic order is a part of the way in, in which the economy and labor market operates. Hence, it's structural, and you can't get rid of it without understanding the structures that are constantly reproducing black positionality within the labor force. Let me be more specific. When you look at the the job structure in in, in, in Erie County, about 70% of the jobs in the county do not require a, a college degree. Don't require a college degree. Say that again. 70% of all the jobs in Erie County, county, the entire county. The entire county. Don't require. Now, nationally, it's 65%. So it's not in a local anomaly. So we're talking vocational jobs, welding, plumber, whatever. Okay. So, but those jobs are classified into what I call high income working class jobs and low-income working-class jobs. Whites are concentrated and overrepresented in the high-income working-class jobs, and blacks are concentrated, along with other people of color, and overrepresented in the low-wage working-class jobs. And educational attainment alone is not cannot going to explain solve. that sorting and sifting. Give me an example of each of those type of jobs. Well, I'm, I'm talking about uh, if, if you're working in the hospital or the home care, okay. care industry, sure. or if you're working in, uh, in uh, the food prep thing, flipping hamburgers okay. or, or in, in, a, in a grocery store clerk line, you're making $1. If you're driving a, a, a truck... If you're a plumber, an electrician, a welder, a welder yeah. working at a high-end factory, you're developing another kind of income. And so in those higher-level jobs where you have to be union members, where you have to have apprentice programs, where you have these other structures in place, blacks are locked out of those kinds of things. Is it because of access to the training and education that's needed for someone to reach that level? That's a part of it, but even the training is, is off. Take, take for example, Northland that everybody likes to raise on a, on a pedestal. 
they make a separation between skills development and actual ability to get the training. So you have to pass a test even to get the training. And if you don't pass the test, they will teach you the skills in a bubble. And a bubble is, is my word for classroom. Yeah. They don't have to do it that way. They do offer some, and I just had Stephen Tucker on this program uh, about a week ago. Right. They do offer some wraparound services, they call. Um, if, if, they're the, teaching the you, if they're teaching you welding, they're also teaching you literacy skills, that kind of thing. Yeah, but that's limited. That's limited. That's not the center of the program. And what I'm saying is that that there's no reason to make that separation at all. As a way of operating, the literacy training and the other types of things should be built into into just the, the training program itself. But the other thing is that we have a lot of what I call bubble training. Again, training that's separated from the actual real job. When employees are saying they prefer people who've gone through on-the-job training program, not people who have been trained in an isolation from actual real work. We don't do it that way. And, and so... Internships, co-op education, all, all of, those, of that. All of those things that give you training where you're actually doing the work. And in other instances where we have a, an enormous possibility, like, for example, we know that we're going to spend millions and millions of dollars on the, on the different projects that will be occurring on the east side. There's no reason why you have two choices, two choices. If you develop a robust on-the-job training program for the people who live in those neighborhoods and, and communities, and you augment that with the literacy training tied into the work. And when I talk about wraparound services, I'm talking about wraparound social services because many of the people who live in these neighborhoods and communities, they got issues or people that they know got issues. And so you have to have a framework that's going to be supportive of them all the way up into the fact that they didn't show up for work. Somebody's knocking on their door and say, hey, it's work time. Let's In the go. suburban schools, Regent Bob Bennett once upon a time called that family support centers. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking okay. about. Uh, but individually designed. If you do it that way, all of the work that is going to be coming down, the people who live in the neighborhoods can do that work. Therefore, they can rebuild their lives as they rebuild their own neighborhoods. The option is for all of that wealth to come down. But then white business owners, white workers will get those jobs and opportunities and money will flow through the east side like water through a sieve on route to white suburban neighborhoods and hold and any of the water. It holds okay. none All of right. the water. Let's talk more about solutions. Uh, you have listed a lot of problems in the report, and many of them you say can be uh, solved by creating a neighborhood social economic development zone, an entity that would be in charge of its own destiny and also make sure that planning and development takes place and that rental housing issues are addressed and that um, vacant lot development strategy would be there and that there would even be green development and parks. How would this entity work? Would it be... Here's, here's what I'm, I think uh, you have to do. I, I think there are several elements, components that you need to put together in order to make east side development work for east siders. Would it be its own planning board or... 
I no, you always bring in other people to do the planning, but the, the larger question is number one, who controls the land? So a major thing that you want to be able to do is develop a publicly financed community land trust. And that community land trust, I said publicly financed, because you, you want that land trust to have the capacity to bring in some of the best and the brightest of people to do that work because it's complex it revolve real estate and development and the like and gain control i mean the city should give over say all of its publicly owned vacant lots to such an entity then the community would have control over the forms and types of development that occurs you divide the neighborhoods in, into planning areas where the people who live in, in the, the neighborhood and the communities work closely with those planners to determine how to grow and develop those neighborhoods and the communities. And you have to place the substandard housing problem at the center. As we say, the main thing Buffalo has to do, fix the houses where people currently live. And the fix land. Fix the housing where people currently live. I'm having trouble picturing how the land trust model would allow that or make that happen? Well, the land trust model now means that you have a vehicle that can control and own the land on behalf of the neighborhood and the community. And the people who live in those areas can determine the type of development that occurs. And across the country, wherever this positive and progressive development happens, you have these land trusts. And a land trust is simply that the community gains ownership over the land. It's held in perpetuity by the community. And so the community can decide, are we going to build rental housing here? Are we going to develop commercial development here? They're the ones that are negotiating with the developer over what type of development that that will go, how we will construct the profit base and the the like. How would that be different from... Uh, Alexander Wright saying, we have bought a building. We want the African food co-op to be in this building. And he goes to the city. The, he buy- the, go, go ahead. Uh, in, in the private model, yeah. the, the profits, they go up here. Then the profits are shipped off as uh, uh, dividends uh, to the shareholders and the stockholders. Even if they, the land we're talking about is city-owned land, there's still a profit motive there. Explain. Well, the, the, the city, the, the, the city is 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 always trying to make money. The city sees itself as as a money maker, and so when the city owns property, it's trying to sell those properties to to the private sector or to the nonprofit sector. A classic example of that was the private land that they owned over in the Fruit Belt and other locations where they sold four lots to St. John's Church for $200,000. They're trying to make money. Other developers have told me that they've sold them properties. I was working with the team a number of years ago, headed by Jim Pitts and Charlie Gordon, and we had a high idea for high-end, not high-end, for uh, a a below-market-rate housing for low-income population groups to make the project work. We needed the city to give us the vacant lots. And they wouldn't? They said, no, we won't do it. And that killed the project because you couldn't do the project and make the numbers work if you had to pay 
uh, significant amounts of money for the vacant land. So the community land trust takes that dimension away. And that's what they're attempting to do right now in, 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 the, in the fruit belt. Right. And this, this land. And, and, and the, the wealth that has occurred from these is then reinvested in the neighborhood and the community. And it doesn't escape and go into other locations or places. I find it intriguing that you list again all the problems that we discussed in the first two thirds of this program. And many of them, you say, can be solved by this East Side Development Coordinating Committee, the Land Trust. Um, some of them, housing obviously has a role to play there. Well, well it's, 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 some of the, the, all of the problems are complex, but you have to be, say, we're going to attack this problem, and this is the problem. Let me give you an example. We say the number one challenge, fix the housing where people live. The city says, leave that alone. Let's build new houses. Let's build new affordable units. The issue is you'll never be able to build enough new affordable units to house these folks. And in meantime, the houses that they're currently living in is blighting the neighborhoods, pulling down uh, the property values of those owner-occupied housing and killing people. So... So that's that's you. It's not an issue that you can build your way out of. But if if the housing demand is so great and you have this local ownership entity making those kind of decisions, would it not be automatic that they would just say, we need housing, put a housing complex there, put a housing complex there and so on. But but the issue is to solve a critical social issue. The critical social issue is it's uh, close to 70 percent of black buffalo is living in in, in rental property. Uh, uh, the vast majority of those units are substandard. If you build new housing, you're not going to build enough new housing to get these people to move out of the existing units into the new housing units. That that won't happen. You won't have enough units. Meanwhile, the people will continue to reside in these dilapidated and run-down units and all of the issues. So instead of trying to build your way out of the problem, identify the problem as substandard housing and rent gouging, and let's fix the housing where people are living in, then new bills are complementary to this, not a solution. That, that brings me perfectly to another point that you in the report discuss, the idea that health outcomes are obviously lower in the African-American community. And the part that intrigues me, and we only have just just a short amount of time because I want to get to segregation and other big topics, um, but the part that intrigues me is that you say this planning entity, this development coordinating committee, could in fact address health outcomes and disparities. Yeah, is the, that the, because of the social determinants of yeah, health? Yeah, the, the, the health inequities are driven by the social determinants of, of That's life. That's where I thought you were headed. Okay. They, they're driven by the dilapidated and run-down housing. They're, they're di driven by the, 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 the lack of a green infrastructure to protect you against pollution. They're driven by the lack of a neighborhood infrastructure, the lack of, of food stores and other critical institutions that, that are inside of the neighborhood and the community. That's what they're driven by. So you cannot 
eliminate health inequities without transforming the physical environment in which people live. Now, let me say a quick word about neighborhood development. The neighborhood development entity is just a vehicle to get people who actually live in the neighborhood and the communities to be in a position where they drive the development of their own neighborhoods I, I and communities. Play, I've got to play devil's advocate, though. Go ahead. Um, if if people in the community have such a desire for X or Y or Z, we have elected officials. They could percolate those ideas up through City Hall, no? Well, the elected, if the elected officials actually represented the neighborhood and the community, and if the, 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 uh, the mayor actually reflected the interests of the neighborhood and the community, that would happen. But what we have seen in, in Buffalo and many other cities around the United States, they favor the real estate industry, they favor the development industry, and when they think of how to build a great city, their concern anchors, how do we develop the waterfront? How do we develop downtown? How and do we develop that same template our, then moves to the east side and becomes a, how do we develop? Yeah, but that's a, based upon class exclusivity. Okay. And the last time we saw that kind of development really take root was in Washington, D.C. Guess what? In 1970 in Washington, D.C., it was 70% black. Today, Washington, D.C. is less than 40, 42 percent black. So what those forms of development will not, cannot, and have never worked for African-Americans. They lead to uh, displacement. And we're not saying we're not going to develop the east side, but then no more black people live over there. They developed the, the, the fruit belt is being developed, right? But in 1990... I mean, 1970, there were almost uh, 9,000 black people living in the fruit belt. So in the new development fruit belt, there'll probably be less than 1,000 black people living there. Black folks don't need that type of development. East Side does not need that type of development. We need development for the people who live in the neighborhoods and the community. And only the people who live in these neighborhoods and community can drive that form of development. Then you create these on-the-job training programs so that they will be able to to participate in the redevelopment of their own neighborhoods and in the process rebuild their lives. The last two items you list as longer term priorities, because believe it or not, everything else <laughs> everything else is short term. This man's an optimist. I think you want to get it done short term, but longer term, you talk about um, residential segregation as the linchpin in the system of black inequality. And you also talk about the idea of development of neighborhood commercial corridors. Let's take take each one in turn. Talking first with the uh, the retail corridors. How do you redevelop that? Uh, right now, we, we've turned the world upside down. We're trying to develop the corridors and with the idea that the corridors will then trigger the development of the neighborhoods. You do it the opposite. You develop the neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods drive the commercial corridor development. And that's what we have to begin to do. Look at these neighborhoods and drive, focus our energy on the development of the neighborhoods primarily and the commercial corridors secondarily. A thriving neighborhood could 
theoretically lure a Wegmans instead of a tops being incentivized from the city yeah. to locate there. Yeah, that's that's how the corridors were built on, on the west side. Hurdle Avenue, uh, uh, Elmwood Corridor, uh, Allentown. They were developed, developed by strengthening and developing the neighborhoods around them and driving the commercial corridor development. You, you do them concurrently, but you have your emphasis on the neighborhoods. Then you have to build an organized force along the commercial corridor. You, you, the commercial corridor has to be turned into a neighborhood-based organization, like they built Forever Elmwood, sure. for example. And, and that way you, you have the residents and the commercial owners driving that. And on the east side, you, you also want a lot of that commercial land to fall within the hands of the community land trust so that it can be developed in a way that drives, to, that creates community wealth. Because when we talk about the east side, we're talking about how do we create community wealth? wealth. There's a difference between individual wealth and community wealth. In white communities, individual wealth might work. In the African-American community, you need to develop community wealth. For example, our greatest institutions in the black community are cooperatives. The church. Sure. It's a co-op. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's ownership a, driven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's I see dri- that. owned by yeah. the people. Yeah. It's a co-op. That's how we have been able to build so, so many successful churches because it's a co-op. And and you have to take the cooperative model and expand it. So on the east side, I'm much more interested in us developing a food co-op. Then, like Lexington, the African Heritage uh, Food Co-op, then bringing in a commercialized uh, 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 business. It's a different form and a different pattern of development where you want to be able to capture the wealth that is created in the community, reinvest in the community, but you develop the community for the people who are living there. And that's what we need to do on Buffalo's east side. I think... We're going to need to have you back because we still have to talk about segregation and there is only three minutes left. (laughs) Um, And segregation is a massive topic. Uh, But briefly, you say that racial residential segregation is the linchpin in the system of black inequality. Um, This is more than just me eating me as a white guy eating a ribs dinner on the east side and realizing that this community has things to offer. When you talk about changing the segregation model. Again, you're you're talking specifically about the housing segregation, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it's housing and neighborhood development. We have to change the way in which we have land value. We have to create a society that is driven by class integration, not the separation of people on the mount based on the amount of money that they make. And that's what has to be broken down where people are free to live anywhere they want to in the metropolitan area and that we have the kinds of transportation and neighborhood development frameworks that are built around that that allow people to have true residential democracy and liberation. When we create that society, you end the age of confined neighborhoods and the age of confined neighborhoods is what gives rise to predatory 
activities. And I want to reemphasize going back, black communities are the site of predatory activities. Then the other dimension of, of, of structural joblessness is that the very neighborhoods where we live have become factories that produce workers who are willing to accept low-wage jobs with limited benefits and virtually no possibility of advancement. 30 seconds left, though. Do you see the need not only for a structural shift, but a cultural shift? Does there need to be more education on racism? Do I, as a white person, need to think differently than than you? There has to be a a, a structural shift, and that structural shift has to be integrated with a cultural shift because we have to change our values, our beliefs, our ways of seeing and understanding the world. And if we change those things, we will also change what our expectations are of the type of city, neighborhood, and communities we wish to build. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor, director of the Center for Urban Studies at UB. Again, his report, The Harder We Want, will be up at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.